So we just took a moment of silence there in concert with a moment of silence that was happening nationally. And um, we are uh, going to go into the beginning of our show with the words of Martin Luther King. We've got to give ourselves to this struggle until the end. Nothing would be more tragic than to stop at this point in Memphis. I want to thank God once more for allowing me to be here with you. I left Atlanta this morning and then I got into Memphis. And some began to say the threats, or talk about the threats that were out. Uh, what would happen to me from some of our sick white brother. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life, longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So, literally just a minute ago was when Martin Luther King was shot in Memphis the day after that talk. And um, we are here today, uh, 50 years later, experiencing the same struggle. Um, there's nobody... Uh, in our universe today, who is the, the the spirit, the social activist, the speaker um, that Martin Luther King was? But we have the Black Lives Matter movement, the folks who protested in Wall Street against the inequality that we are living with, the Emerge America women's movement, and now the students who are working out of Parkland and all over the country and brought that huge um, show of concern for the future of our country just two weeks ago. So he saw it. He said it would continue. Of course he was right, and of course it is continuing. Um, I have with me in studio right now the eloquent and... Uh, I am helping amazing uh, person, Chuck Perkins, <laughs> who, I, who first started here 
on on this show about what two years ago now? Maybe is it three? Maybe, I probably started about three three years is ago, three but maybe years? I started working on WBOK um, maybe a little over two years. Yeah. So uh, Chuck is with us, and he's a powerful speaker as well. <laughs> and um, this is Matt Suarez. And, and mind you, everybody, this is my very first time using a Facebook Live, so excuse the um, roughness of it. I'm just figuring out how to do it. Chuck knows how to do it really well. So he says, aren't you doing Facebook Live yet? Um, you want to do it for me? And he set us up, so we're doing the best. This is Matt Suarez. Matt Suarez organized Freedom Riders here in the late 60s, and he's still at it. Mm-hmm. And also with us is one of the newer faces who works on voter registration. And we're going to talk a lot about voter registration today because, to me, that is where we are going forward. Do I, do I have you on camera? You do. Yeah, introduce <laughs> yourself. Hi, I'm Joyce Van Seen, the founder of Indivisible NOLA. And Indivisible NOLA is, is one of um, several groups that are dealing with the issue of voter registration. Let me start with, um, I, I think, with with um, Matt, because uh, we're going to also take another audio feed of Freedom Riders, some of whom you may know, that um, I have picked up off the Internet in the past couple of days, and we're going to hear their voices. Um, are you queued up on that jazz? Because I'll just go ahead and play them, and then we're going to follow with Matt. These are the voices of, of people who work. I am Helen Singleton. I am a freedom rider. We got off the train in Jackson, Mississippi. We went into the actual terminal, and I saw the whites only sign up above a door, and I knew that's where I'm going. We went to jail. Our intent was to stay in because the mantra was, go to jail, stay in jail, no bail. The magnificent thing is that we won that battle inside of one year. We contributed to changing public policy that had been there since the beginning of the 20th century. I had my picket line going in in Hollywood, and uh, that was my only meeting with Dr. King face to face. And he he marched he marched with us in front of the Woolworth store, and that was that that really made me from that point on. An organizer. <laughs> it was quiet in Atlanta. The silence, once the body came out of the church, the silence on that long march, it was just something I've never experienced before or since. The fact that 50 years later, there's so much still to be done just demonstrates to me and to others how deep, how very, very deep white supremacy, its premises, and the dynamic that uh, still propels our nation is still there. Matt Suarez, you, with CORE, worked with the Freedom Riders. I, I need to understand what it was like, first of all, to do the work you were doing, what happened with what you were doing when Martin Luther King was assassinated, and 
and, and how you feel today about where we are? Those are three big questions. Well, let me start off by making one correction. I would like to start with the fact that I was not one who organized the Freedom Riders. I didn't come on board until afterwards. I provided support, cooperation, assistance, but I was not a Freedom Rider, and I did not recruit any Freedom Riders. I knew that, but you did work with them. Yes. Uh, Martin Luther King died right after I had returned to New Orleans. I left Mississippi. I had been working in Mississippi. And we, well, he and I had had a discussion and a dispute about a program that was being conducted in Mississippi. And uh, we were on opposite sides of the fence. Uh, went through a lot of hassle and, I don't know, mixed feelings about what was being done. But when it ended, uh, he said, I appreciate your position. I respect your position, although I could never support it. You know? Uh, it was a time when we were feeling a lot of tension and one of my last comments to him was be careful, you know, and that's the way we parted. Uh, shortly after that, he was assassinated. I had returned to New Orleans. I don't know what else to say about it. Devastating. Uh, what was the dispute about? What, what was the position? Well, we were organizing the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party and the challenge to the convention. And we had put together a program to raise funds to try and support us. We had an organization called the Council of Federated Organizations, COFO. And although the NAACP was a member, they were not participating. They looked upon us as a bunch of wild radicals who they were not at all in support of confrontational, you know, disputes and that kind of thing. And at the last moment, Martin agreed to come and help us raise funds. Well, Charles Evers, who had come into Mississippi as a uh, I don't know replacement for Medgar Evers, insisted that 
even though they were not a part of the organization and would not contribute in any way, in any form, he insisted on getting 50% of the funds that were raised if he was going to show up at the affair and speak supportively of what we were doing. Well, that kind of blew a gasket for me. I said, no, no way. The NAACP doesn't participate. They don't support us. Uh, but because you're going to make an appearance and say something, you want 50% of the funds, no way, you know. And everyone else, to my knowledge, with my exception, agreed to maintain peace and to see the success of the program, go ahead and split the funds with him. And I said, no, I'm sorry. And they outvoted me, and they decided to do it. Well, I organized a group of youngsters, brought them into the meeting hall, and put them up in the balcony. And I disrupted the meeting. I wouldn't let it go on. Uh, they called me into a meeting. We sat down and we talked. But we, we couldn't agree. Matt, was it... Um was was the was that kind of disagreement um, common during that time? Because y'all accomplished so much coming together, and and every single political movement. I'm sure that's going on right now with the kids. What? How are we going to do this? How are we going to do that? And 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 then of course taking the kind of guff. Is that a word that they <laughs> it, that they've been taking from? some of the folks on the other side of, of their issue, of the gun violence issue. Was it was that a common situation where you had to kind of debate the logistics and the issues along the way? And, and how did you overcome that to get done what was, what was accomplished? No, pretty much everyone was in agreement and everyone was supporting pretty much the strategies that Bob Moses had organized and prepared for. And everyone, I think, wanted the full 100% support of everybody. And to my knowledge to this day, a lot of people express dissatisfaction, but they would not do that publicly. It was an in-house sort of discussion. And I said, no, you know, I'm sorry, I can't go along with that. Uh, as far as the NAACP con was involved or the things they were doing, was primarily church meetings where they appeared at some minister's church services and made a speech or whatever and encouraged people to join the NAACP by memberships, you know. And it, 
it was not anything that we were involved with. We were not against it. We said, yes, certainly support them. But what we were doing was more confrontational. And go ahead. Well, well tell, tell me more about we. Who was, who was we? We had a organization called the Council of Federated Organizations, and each organization had representatives that sat on the board which made the decisions. I was one that was representing CORE. Dave Dennis was also there representing CORE. Uh, Annie Moody, uh, George Raymond. SNCC had maybe 20, 30 people who were serving on the board in one capacity or another. Uh, SCLC had two or three representatives sitting on the board. You know, each organization had representatives that were sitting on the board that discussed major policy decisions. They also helped to strategize, although Bob Moses was pretty much the leader and spokesman for the group. Uh, everyone had an opportunity to express their either agreement or disagreement with the decisions that were being made. You know. What was the focus? You said confrontational. You were more confrontational. What was your, what was your kind of priority? strategies and and of, of all the things that you did um, in retrospect what would you say was the most effective what really accomplished because you know again right now we have all of these movements it's so ironic isn't it that 50 years after Martin Luther King's um, demise but not in, in a certain way here we are at the time of resurrection right in the, the, the spring and the around Easter, and, and we're, we're looking at a resurrection in a sense of, of the activism in our country. Uh, and and, and these, these youth who were involved in this movement seem to be so smart in a way in what they've done, including soliciting the help of the women's movement and other people who have helped them figure out how to do what they're doing. But one worries, are we, they all feel, oh, they're going to go ahead. I hear they're taking gap years, they're not going to college, they're going to work on this if, if you had to advise them on what happened during those early days of the civil rights movement that really worked and what were some of the things that you had to overcome, what would you, where, how would you put that? I don't know. That would take a great deal of thought. One of the things I've attempted to do is not, try and act like a wise spokesman in advising the youth of what they should or should not be doing. I say that we did our thing when we were on the forefront. It's yours. Go at it. You know, make your own decisions. I want to hear from Chuck just a little bit, too, at this time. On <clears throat> Chuck, were you here in New Orleans? Did you live in New Orleans when... There was segregation. Are you that old? Um, when were you born? I was born in 65. 
right on the cusp. But it's it's still kind of bizarre, though, you know, because you can read books by people like Danny Barker and talk about certain neighborhoods in New Orleans that were pretty much integrated for a long time. It's been, maybe it was like Italians or Jews or something like that. So I'm, I'm 52. I never lived in a segregated neighborhood in New Orleans. Now, it's funny, though, because it doesn't, like, you might hear that and be like, wow, that sort of sound kind of utopian, but not quite, because uh, we were physically, like, integrated, right? And I'm happy to say that in my neighborhood, we never had any problems. We were always civil and cordial with our neighbors, but when it was time for us to do whatever it was we did, we it was we, it was always separate. Like, um, behind us, it was a blue-collar white family, the Stansberries, and they had a, a, a son, Richard, a couple years older than me. We were kind of friendly toward each other. But the park was right across the street, and that park was integrated in about 1970. And even though the park was right across the street from Richard's house, if, if I saw him shooting basketball in that park, which was, like, almost in his backyard, it, it seemed odd to me, almost like, like, hey, man, what is Richard doing in the in the park? I, and he played basketball, but he went somewhere in Metairie, I guess. So it's it's it, New Orleans is kind of like a, a strange kind of place when it comes to that kind of stuff. I always try to explain uh, uh, New Orleans <clears throat> to people, and I always say um, that's my basic word. It's complicated. <laughs> right. it's, it's 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 not like anywhere else in the South or the North. Um, but every place is complicated. I mean, you know, to I grew up in New York, and to say that we were integrated, of course, it's kind of comes out the same way that you just described, integrated and yet not. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so. Um, I want to. How do you all feel about today? And we're going to move pretty soon into hearing from um, the the, uh, the new organizers, one of the new organizers, and and um, I, I want to hear from um, both of you really on on um, how you're feeling about this moment. I I really appreciate what you said about how you don't want to. Um, Tell the people who are organizing now how to do what they got to do. That you you say it's it's their it's their time. It's their um, uh, moment. How how do you feel for you? How New Orleans is today as compared with then, as in part a result of the efforts that you made at that time. Well, I'm not certain because I'm not out there that much anymore. But in listening to them and what they have to say, I feel that they have a pretty good grasp of what our environment is all about now and what it is they need to be doing. And that's one of the reasons why I stay out of their way. A a number of my co-workers attempt to be the wise old elder who these young kids should listen to, and I can tell them how to. No, I don't want to be a part of that. I feel that they have enough sense. They know what the problem is. They can plan their own strategies and make their own decisions about what they want to be involved in. And so I attend a few of the meetings, and I listen to what is being said, and I try and identify who the leaders are, or potential leaders are, but I'd really avoid getting into a decision-making process or when people come asking me about, you know, what do you think we should do? I say, I'm sorry, you got to decide that for yourself. <laughs> hey, hey, Mr. Suarez, I want to say, um, you know, I 
I really do um, respect your your humility. I, I I really do, and I and I and I appreciate the the answer because um, so one of the things I heard Kwame Ture said, you know, he said a lot of times one of the problems is that there's some people who they always looking back for the answer, you know, but you know, there's certain variables have changed. And so yeah. if you if you try doing the exact same thing <laughs> that you did fifty years ago, there's a good chance it ain't gonna work because there's some some aspects of the environment that's changed. But with that being said, I do wanna say, um while I man, I, I, I respect that humility, I think we, you could still um like some of us still want to hear from you and, 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 and get your, your, your ideas. And the fact that you aren't locked in saying, hey, this is absolutely the way it has to be done, I, I appreciate that. But you could still say, well, this is what Brother Suarez is thinking. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, but I, I really don't feel comfortable in that role. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's something that's past me. I got it's you. Like, I got you. you. Know. I got you. Let, let me ask um, Joyce, um, uh, you know, again, one of the reasons I played that segment of um, um, Dr. King at the beginning of the uh, program is because um, he talked about voter registration as such a key part of the movement then. And here we are today, and it is such a key part of how we have to achieve change from the, the challenges that we're faced at the national level and, of course, at the local level in this country. And this is one of the things that you've committed yourself to and your organization is involved in. I want to hear from you. And, and Jackie Jones couldn't come on the show, but shortly we're going to hear a little bit from her, and she's involved in this also. And she just told me the most amazing thing today, that a campaign that she's involved in in Jefferson Parish, she just registered six thousand students in the schools mm-hmm. in Jefferson mm-hmm. Parish. Wow. That's the way to make a change, get people to the polls. You know, that's one of the definitely one of the principles that we operate by. We we do more to support other organizations. So as the newbie, you know, we um you know, I I agreed to come here today because I thought that, you know, we were going to talk about sort of the role of white people in the modern civil rights movement. And, Talk about it. And, yeah, and voter registration and how, how it fits it. in that. And so I think it's really important to say that the Power Co- Coalition, the Jeremiah Group, they do amazing work around voter registration and especially communities of color. And um, we are doing some voter registration work. We get people to host gatherings for their neighbors in their homes um, because – Really doing that grassroots, building those relationships ahead of time before an election comes so that people can address these issues together, talk about what's going on, and be more motivated to go to the polls is really important. We do do voter registration events like tabling, showing up to protest, working with the, you know, when the students were walking out, doing stuff like that. Um, But more often than not, we follow the lead of organizations led by the people most impacted by whatever issue we're working on, whether that's, you know, voter access is more of an issue for communities of color. So we defer to organizations that are led by people of color um, on this and all matters. You know, if it's, if we want to do activism for immigration, we look to organizations that are led by immigrants. We, you know, so that's how we operate. And um, I think it all fits together, you know, certainly getting people to the polls, motivating them. And in my world, you know, getting 
white people to show up for organizations that are led by the affected communities of whatever issue they are passionate about. That I, that is how I see our role as indivisible. Hey, hey Jean, so let me call, call uh, I, I was coming to me, you. You know I was coming to some, you. <laughs> some controversy on the show right I, I, I'm gonna, I got something to add to this, too. Go ahead. See, you know, we and, and whenever I say this, a lot of my friends get angry with me. Even some of my friends that have a tremendous amount of respect for, right? Who have, you know, who seem to have some clarity on what our issues are. But I think, you know, when we put all the eggs in the the, the voters' basket, you know, we put in the hearts before the, the 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 cart. And the reason I say that, I just got there from reading Notes of a Native Son by James Baldwin, you know, and he said something in there about politicians. That, I mean, it's so painful. He said, listen, man, he said the people already know that the politicians ain't going to do nothing. And so they, 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 they reduce it to like a barter thing. Be like, what can I get from you? What, what? All I can get is a, all I can get is a ham sandwich, but that's better than that. I'll take it. Right. And so the, the point I'm trying to make, if we, when we go out there and we say, hey, listen, voting is really important, really important. But then, you know, we vote for people and it seems like you only vote for people who seem to have self-interest. And that's a terrible thing to have happen. You know why? Because like all those people who you who you get interested, who say, yeah, get off the sideline. We need you. We need you. We need you. After a few cycles of that, <laughs> then we get that. Man, I ain't got time. I don't have time. I don't I don't have time for that. So we can't just say vote. We got to we got to have organizations, you know, and um, who, 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 who vet people and, and have the people who run in for a particular office, not just with self-interest, but coming from the from the organization, right? And so at least at that point, it's not like we, we know what you, we, we know how you're wired. We know if you're really going to, you know, in those moments where you got to stand up and do what's right, right? When ain't nobody watching. We know you're going to do what's right because we had a chance. We've been with you. But we don't have that. Most times people, you know, like the, 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 the business interests say, hey, this is, this is the guy right here. Vote for him. They got all the money. Then somehow this person wins. And, 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 and then people become more indifferent. Apathy set, um, sets in. And then our job to go out and get people interested and say, hey, it's, it's really important to vote becomes a lot more difficult. So um, I, I have uh, two perspectives that I want to <clears throat> add to this. And that is one, um, what I I'll talk about on this show a lot is the importance of not just voting, but staying on the case after the election, holding the candidates mm-hmm. who become the office holders feet to the fire and making sure that they actually do what people elected them to do. Accountability is something that is really harder. It's hard enough to get out to vote. You know, you got to take, you know, find a babysitter or, um, you know, put off chores that you've got to do. You've, you've got to fit that voting in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm much harder to stay on the case afterwards. And so to me, that's a big part of it. So what happens with that person after they get in office and whether they actually stay on the program that they committed mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. Um, or not is up to the same folks who went mm-hmm. to the polls. Now listen to this, Jane. Oh, okay, now wait. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm One sorry. other perspective okay. I'm, I'll okay. add, and then we'll come back. So the other perspective I have has to do with how – do we reach people, white people, who are suffering as much or similarly, let's just say, to people in the black community today who think that somebody like Trump 
or a group of people who have either racist points of view or militaristic points of view um, or actually are totally cynical and put out a populist story, but they're really at heart really don't care about the people they're using to get into office, right? And I'm not going to throw out any names here. I don't have to. We all know who I'm talking about. Okay. Um, how do we reach these people who are suffering from this economic transition we're in as much as the kids coming out of high school now who don't have the training for the world that's developing this new economy? How do we reach them? And I, I think we have to embrace them as much as we embrace people of color, immigrants, women, kids, we have to we have to open our arms. And, and and this is my husband speaking more than me in a way because I'm not the most tolerant person in the world. Mm -hmm. But I really have to think. I guess because I come from a working class background, I just have a glimmer mm -hmm. of how much those folks mm -hmm. are suffering too. Mm -hmm. So that's my question. I think well, if we don't reach them well, about, and help them understand what's really going we're talking, on, we're, talking we're never going to We're talking about Dr. Changed. King, right? We're talking about Dr. King, right? Well, I mean, he crystallized that with the the, 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 the conversation he had with the white prison guard. <laughs> you understand? A working class white prison guard. He's like, look, man, based on the conditions that you are living in right now, that you are living in, you ought to be over here with me fighting against the same thing. But it's always been been an issue. If you Nancy Eisenberg wrote that, she's a professor at LSU. She wrote the book White Trash, and she talked about class mainly from a white working class perspective. And so from very early on after slavery, like the the the, the white working class were used as like a like a wedge, a, a buttress uh, for, with, the, with the with the with the with the blacks. And you know that famous quote from Lyndon B. Johnson, right, saying that all you got it's, it's some about all you got to do it to convince. Um, the lowliest white man that he's better than the than the the, the you know the most well educated black man is to well, well do something convince him that he's better and he said you know you can pick his pocket and then if you do something else you could you could rob him blind or whatever. Lyndon B. Johnson said that you know that's all it's 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 so it's something that's been a problem it's not it's not a new thing it's been around for you know since we since we've been in this country. It's actually been around even longer. I mean, that, that's 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 the other thing that I come away from looking at these 50 years and, and, and feeling about is that I, I feel like um, it, it's, it, this is not a struggle that is going to come and go, that we're going to win or lose. It just goes on. And we have to be vigilant and responsive and tackle it all the time. You know what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Change, change, change is not going to come today, tomorrow, yesterday. It just it's it's a everyday struggle. Now, now there's one thing that struggle. there's one point that I've gotten to, Gene, and I, and I think when I say this, most people think that I'm crazy, right? But you know, I was one of the people out there saying it's time to get these statues down. And of course, um, Reverend Marie Galatis and um, Brother Carl Gallman, they were Reverend Avery Alexander, they were out there way before us. I say we got to get the story right. You, under, you understand? As long as you got a, a, a Nordic European picture of Jesus Christ, the Bible says the Jews are the other, other, other uh, chosen people, 
in any instances in the, in the past of black genius, black resistance, black creativity, put that down, put that down. You understand? Then you take uh, the, the Confederates weren't here until they, the, the, the Union got here in 1862. So they got people think maybe the Confederates had a much bigger part of this thing. And so it's the story. As long as, as young black kids think that 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 genius, that's trying to be white. And I, they don't want to. They don't want to pursue that because they they want to be true to themselves. That story is killing us. So we got to get that right. And some people say, "Man, I don't want to talk about that. Talk to me about the schools. Talk to me about the streets." Well, if you don't get that right, you can educate black people, and they'll graduate from some of the most pre prestigious universities and 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 secretly hate themselves. So we got to get the story right. Some people think that's a non-issue. For me, it's the issue. No argument there. However, again, my my sense of it is, I I, I want to, I, I always kind of want to convince somebody of something they don't want to be convinced of. <laughs> so I, I I'm always thinking about. <laughs> I might not be your girl, Jean. <laughs> well, I mean, in terms of trying to reach, we were talking a minute ago about the white perspective and trying to reach out to white people, and um and 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 Chuck Perkins is going to peel off. Are you peeling off? Yes. We'll have we'll. we'll I'll be tuning into you tomorrow and pick up <laughs> where you leave off at this moment. But um, I, I, I want to figure out what do I have to do? What do we have to do? I, I want to see change happen upstate, not just not just here in New Orleans. And I worry about how, how can we – what we've gone through, the, the log jam in, in the state legislature is not that different from the log jam up in Washington. And um, how, how do we break that? And I don't see how we break that unless we reach – out to um, the minds and hearts of, of white people upstate. Yeah, it's rough. Being, you know, in this beautiful blue city in this red state is very frustrating. And there have been some things lately that have come through Louisiana legislation that have been very, very frustrating. I mean, it, there are people within my organization that agree with you completely, changing the hearts and minds of these voters who are voting against their own self-interest out of their own either latent or overt racism or um, they're convinced that this, you know, guy is the answer or whatever their rationale is. There are people that believe that and, you know, I support them. For me, I don't focus on changing hearts and minds of people who are not on the same page as me. That's not where I put my energy. I feel like it's more important to try and mobilize people who have the heart and mind where my heart and mind is, but they just don't know what to do. They haven't been showing up. And maybe they don't vote out of apathy. And what Chuck said was brilliant and true about how people might get excited and they might get involved. Like after this, you know, people are suffering under Trump and they're going to vote. But then they're, you know, maybe if we do get a Democrat in office, things aren't necessarily going to get too much better. Because truthfully, the system is rigged where money wins and the people lose. Unless we call out that money. So one of the things oh, that... Oh, we're doing it. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, I, I, I mean, uh, you're, you're doing it. I want to know about that because one of the things I think I really want to see in print, and if somebody gives me the list, I will publish it in our newsletter every single week. Who is getting how many millions from the NRA, for example? And I know that Cassidy, our senator, is, is in the top ten, and he's getting millions and he's bought and paid for. Yep. How, 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 you know, so I, I feel that if people really know and understand the extent to which these representatives are not representing them, but those lobbyists, that has 
got to change votes. And I believe that's already happening. Not only did you see what happened in Alabama, in Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia, and now Texas. Have you seen the stories about Texas in the past few days? What's going on? Uh, you know, Cruz is not a shoe. Yeah. In. Oh, there's a real race. We're we're actually going to be very involved with that as well, trying to help swing Texas. We we have a, we call it Operation Mess with Texas. <laughs> Mess with Texas. And I was born there. I can say that. <laughs> I was born there too, but raised up in the Bronx. I was so. raised here. Yeah. So so what does that mean? How what uh, what exactly are you doing to get that information out, that data out? You mean about the money? Yeah. So there the are money. there are um, websites, and I don't know them off the top of my head, where you can see what the NRA is paying at any given point. There's a great app to, um, unfortunately, very specifically named Boycott Trump, but you can look on there, and it'll you can see what companies um, he gets money from, either directly or indirectly. You're talking about Trump. Trump, and also the whole, you know, administration, and you can directly contact the companies from the app. So there are things like this you can find to find out who's getting the money and what, you know, their interests are. I, I really want to see the the numbers for our state legislators and our um, congressional delegation. I want, to, I want to see the numbers, not just for the past year, but cumulatively. Yeah. That's the number that I really... Uh, is anybody working on that? Because I don't have the staff for the NRA to do that. I did yeah, see a, a list recently, um, and Bill Cassidy is in the top ten. He they spent a lot of money running ads against Mary Landrieu. Um, you know, they really did put an interest in that. They don't spend as much money in other areas of the state because, really, you know, Republicans are going to win and they don't have to invest that much. But for for the Cassidy race, they really did push hard, and he took those checks too. Well. I, I don't know. I think that Trump has set a dream, and that is that if we work together, and I'm speaking of whites, we can all get financially well off. And Trump's interest is only about how much money he can generate. It has nothing to do with anything else. He uses it as a tool to try and gain support, to have people to believe in his philosophy. But his philosophy really only deals with Trump. <laughs> Trump's amazing, the wealth that he has uh, in s such a short period of time has people believing that there's some things out there that he knows that they don't know, uh, and they would like to be closer to his position, if not in his position. Unfortunately, I think too many blacks are accepting that argument also. You know, they're looking to move up the social status, the financial status, the ability to amaze wealth, and we don't really know how to combat that. With the, most of us don't take it on. You know, we don't try and challenge it. So I don't know at this time how to take Trump on and have some sort of impact 
impact that would begin to turn that curve around because really he will change what he says in a moment. In a heartbeat. Yeah. Uh, no matter what it is, it has something to do with generating funds. And if it isn't working right now, he'll change it. Yeah. You know, uh, that's what's proving to be very difficult to work with blacks and whites. They they believe in him, and they believe that he can lead them to wealth, to financial stability. So they believe in him just because, I, I kind of had that feeling in the beginning, they believe in him because, oh, he's rich, so he must be right. Mm-hmm. Well, I asked the question, <laughs> he's still collecting income tax off of this billion dollars that he lost in the casino whatever, but I say, how can you lose a billion dollars that you didn't have and you never paid off for? The bankers didn't get their payments. (laughs) They had to go in there themselves to, you know, survive and scratch out whatever they could to replace the monies they had invested in him. Bunch of the contractors didn't get paid either, and even people who work for him didn't get paid. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. mean it. It is endless how much of a you've been you've been trying to say something too. Well, I just think, how much of a thug he is. Yeah, I mean for me, if we're talking about um, ch- changing the tide, really the way to do that is to flip Congress in 2018. <laughs> Like that's what that's all we got right now because Republicans seem to be really kind of pushing aside any efforts to find out the truth about him or what's going on, and if we can take this opportunity, like by flipping Texas, we're going to have road trips out there. We're going to be canvassing in neighborhoods, you know, in Texas trying to flip. We want Ted Cruz out among others. Um, take advantage of those purple districts and turn them blue, and then there will be checks and balances at least. Well, uh, the other thing that can be, which they cannot be now, is impeachment. I mean, you want you want to get rid of what's up there, right? There's only one way, and yeah. that that's why I say that the outcome in a way of the movement, however cynical some of the politicians who get in may be, it has to always be about doing what we can do, which is to vote. And hold them accountable. But, I mean, the only chance we have, really, is you're not going to get impeachment with this Republican Congress, no matter what Mueller comes up with. And if you're talking about, you know, Martin Luther King's legacy and this important day that we're reflecting on, I mean, changing hearts and minds, that happens through beautiful art. That happens through music. um, That happens through movies and books and things that really touch people's feelings. Arguing about politics with people who have bought into this, you know, vision of um, what's on the table right now in in Washington is really, I haven't found it very productive. And I got some real people, you know, loved ones who I've tried this with and it, it hasn't worked. So I put my focus on putting these checks and balances in place. Civil rights is not a Republican or a Democrat issue. 
I mean, I think before this. And that's what I was trying to say before, by the way, and I don't think I said it very well. Civil rights is not a black or a white issue. It may be more a black issue than it is a white issue, but it is an everybody issue, especially now when you have a, when you have people who are really trying to take away civil rights across the board. Right. I think until now, um, I think most people, you know, in, in Washington around the country just, you know, would agree that civil rights are good for everyone, that equality is good for everyone, that equity is good for everyone. And um, now we have a very different thing happening. Um, so I don't see that, you know, civil rights as much of a political issue as I see that is a justice issue. It's a human issue. And as we know, any sort of dehumanizing of a person really dehumanizes it, the person doing it as well. So, you know, the oppressors might feel like they're winning, but they're not because they're they're dehumanizing themselves at the same time. It's not good for humanity. Any sort of oppression is not good for any of humanity. So for me, the two issues are a little bit separate, but also we're trying to manage all of this at the same time, right? Because we see, you know, with Black Lives Matter and all the things that are happening in communities of color, the oppression that they're facing, it's a very real issue right now. And um, we can make a change through politics. We can make some change through changing hearts and minds, but also, you know, attacking it from every angle at the same time really and it's a lot you know you you kind of said it beautifully earlier we you there is no one answer you know there is no one answer well <laughs> i'm lost because i think no matter how much energy effort strategies we put in to try and convince people that treating each other as humans, as, you know, self-respecting participants in this society is only going to affect a certain number. And that other percentage is always there trying to figure out a way to do it differently. You know, they want the wealth, they want the power, they want uh, the, the last two that was elected was the one who used to be the uh the senator from uh Baton Rouge that what he he was he was some state um oh lord i know who you mean and and the doctor also yeah if yeah, you yeah. listen you listen to them carefully oh, Kennedy, right yeah and what they're saying they haven't changed they haven't turned. They, are, they aren't trying to do anything differently. They're trying to reinforce their position and to expand their lines of control. Uh, you know, I mean, it's just mind-bewildering to see people vote so strongly. Like, I didn't expect that doctor to win. I saw what he was doing. Uh, I say people have to see through this. They have to vote against him. It's clear as day to me, but mm -mm. it's it tells you that your work is there, and it's nowhere near coming to an end. You know. We will be out here a very, very long time. That's what I said. I said it never ends. It's, it's. Uh, I, I don't think. 
I think that even these young people who are out there and they're so optimistic and they're fired up and they're saying, we're not going back, we're not going to stop, we're going to keep at it. They, I think they are so sophisticated. They know it's, it, it's, it's not going to change tomorrow. They're going to have to be at it probably in, in many ways for the rest of their lives, and all of us have to be thinking that. And again, here we are 50 years later, and we know that we can't stop and we have to keep going. But I, I, I don't know. I just I can't get cynical about it, and I can't I, – I think that if – if somehow people had better information about going back to the to the money that a guy like Cassidy is getting from the NRA, you mean really if I put that out there on a billboard and I put that out there on television and I put that out there in my newsletter and I put that out there in the radio shows that people are just going to ignore that and think, oh, it's that's okay. I don't care where he gets his money from. Uh-oh, she's nodding her head. <laughs> I think so. I think sadly, yes. I, I think that because they see his interests as aligned with theirs. So if the money's coming from an interest that aligns with their interest, they're going to overlook it. I mean, um, that's just human nature. People, as we have seen with social media and everything that happened with the election, like it's confirmation bias. You're going to believe the things that line up with what you believe. Okay. That's why I say changing hearts and minds, like, I'm going to let those people keep believing what they believe, and we're going to move on and get some laws changed, and we're going to get the people who do believe like we believe, and we're going to make it happen. And then one day they'll have to come around. It's been like that throughout all of history. Because I was just about to say that people do change their minds. Absolutely. I mean, look at where LGBT is today as compared to where it was just 10 years ago, just five years ago. But the laws have to come first. People have to be made to open their minds up. And then some hearts and minds will change as it becomes part of the mainstream so, culture. So, so your basic position is that you just you have to mobilize the minds of the the people who um, are going to uh, push for the change, rather than trying to change the minds. Of, I, I feel know. like I, I just you can try. But in the state of Louisiana, <laughs> is that going to work? Because uh, I, I mean, if if we don't reach out and try to change the positions of some of those folks up there who keep voting for the Cassidy's and the other guys who are who are making a mess of things in Baton Rouge. I, I don't see how we, we break through. By reaching people who don't vote, who haven't been voting. They feel, like Chuck illustrated earlier, that there's really no point in voting and it doesn't make a difference to their lives, and so they don't vote. They might have idea, ideology that lines up with, with ours, but they're not voting because they don't feel like it makes a difference. If we can show them it makes a difference, then they'll show up and vote in in their interest. Well, I'll tell you what I think That's is going to make hope. a difference is when Jackie Jones tells me she has registered 6,000 kids. I think she said from the ages of 18 to 20-something, I forget what, 22, that is going to make a difference. That's going to make and a way. That already, I mean, that already made a difference. That affected the sheriff's race out there. Mm-hmm. Because that was a close race. And that's my And races theory, like that, that are a lot so of important to civil close. rights. I mean, it's not just about who's the president and who's your senator, but who is your sheriff? Who is your parish president? Who is your mayor? Who are your city council members? Who are your state reps? 
finding out those things because those people make huge, huge differences in our lives, in our day-to-day lives, in our ordinances, in the way our city operates. Um, it's not just important to pay attention to, you know, what's going on in D.C., but really in your own backyard. Yes. Like I said, I said once before, I'm lost. I'm bewildered. <laughs> I, I don't but recognize. But you vote, right? Yes, yes. I, and your kids vote. Hmm? And your kids vote. Yes, yes, definitely. And your friends vote. And you. I them. wouldn't swear on that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'll see on my children and myself, uh, my family members, my immediate family. They vote religiously. It's like they're afraid cancer's going to jump on them if they miss voting. But uh, I was at dinner with a couple that we were close friends with, and uh, he said something about, oh, man, I vote. And I'm listening to him talking so strongly about how much he believes in voting and why he went to vote. And his wife said, He's a damn liar. <laughs> See, he didn't get out the bed the day to go to vote, you know. And here's someone who's educated, a really decent job, good income, everything, but he's lying to me over dinner about his going to vote. I'm not going to end on that note. <laughs> I am not going to end on that note. I'm going to say that. Um, I know that you, and I know Joyce, you, and Chuck, and everybody in that studio over there, um, we're all going to work on making sure that we move forward. And um, I know that I'm not going to stop. <laughs> and um, I, 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 I just want, I want those numbers. You send me those numbers. If, if you can get your hands on those numbers of how much money, I just, I just cannot believe that it won't change the minds of some folks out there who've got to say, what? Who does that guy belong to? Me, the people who voted for him, or an organization who paid him millions of dollars? That's the note that I want to end on. You know, I'm, I'm so have no clue how to do this live thing. But this is Gene Nathan. It's Crosstown Conversations. And I'm going to figure it out. That's another thing we're going to get right going forward to. Thank you all for being with us and um, see you next week.